there are rare moments in history that mark the end of an era and the dawning of a new one. The fall of Rome, of course, would be an example of that. The American and French revolutions are prime examples of that. The decline of the British Empire after World War II. All of those events brought about far-reaching change to large parts of the world. But the most decisive moment in history that brought the most significant change is the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why for centuries, people have divided time by the birth of Jesus. We uh, talk about some years being B.C., before Christ, or A.D., which stands for Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, or the year of my Lord, uh, years after Christ. And uh, that's how we've marked time, to to signify how important, how uh, world-changing the coming of Christ was and is. And the coming of Christ was not only the most significant event in world history, it also brought with it a new revelation that has changed millions upon millions of lives. And the Apostle Paul who wrote the letter to the Romans, which we've been studying on Sunday mornings, the Apostle Paul lived in the immediate wake of this seismic shift in world history. And he was commissioned by God not only to proclaim the event that Jesus was born, that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose, but also to explain the significance of, of what God was doing, what God was revealing in the death and resurrection of Christ. I invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Romans chapter 3. We'll be looking this morning at verses 21 and 22 of Romans chapter 3. This is an enormously important uh, moment in Paul's letter to the Romans. In fact, some of you have probably heard me say before, Uh, when uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was one of my uh, hero preachers, um, when Martin Lloyd-Jones published his sermons on Paul's letter to the Romans, and I think it was something like 12 or 14 volumes of sermons, when he published his sermons on Romans, the first volume he published were not his sermons on Romans chapter 1. The first volume of sermons that he published began with Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. And the reason why was because he felt like those were the most, that was the most significant part of this letter, the most important part of this letter. He wanted to get those sermons uh, in front of people first uh, so that they would hear the gospel that Paul proclaims in these verses. Let me read for us verses 21 and really just the first half or so of verse 22. Paul says, But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's where we're going to stop this morning. Now, I want you to notice those first two words there in verse 21. But now. That's a clear signal from Paul that his argument is 
making a significant shift, right? He's been talking about one thing. He's been talking about law and sin and judgment. But now he is shifting to talk about something else. And we're, we're ready for that shift, right? If you've been here through this whole study of Romans, as most of you have, uh, you know Paul has spent a lot of time convincing us, persuading us, uh, telling us that Jews and Gentiles are all under sin, that no one is exempt from sin, no one's exempt from God's judgment, no one's exempt from God's wrath. That doesn't matter who your family is, what nationality you are, how much you know or don't know. Everyone knows enough about God to be held accountable before Him for their sin. Uh, The Jews who have the law still break the law, so they're not off the hook either. Nobody is righteous, Paul said. Everybody is under the power of sin. And really what the law is here to do is not to make us righteous, but the law actually shows us our sin. And so Paul, from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, has been mounting this massive argument to remove every excuse, every false hope, every pretension we might have to uh, thinking that we might be able to stand before God on our own two feet. That we might be welcomed into the kingdom of God because of something we've done or because of who we are. Paul has been removing every argument that anyone might raise in their defense so that we will come to this point in the letter desperate for good news. Knowing our need for something and someone outside of us to save us. And Paul, by those two little words, but now is telling us that he's about to tell us what that good news is. And not only do those two little words signal a shift in the argument, they also signal a shift in history. Most of what Paul has been talking about in these first three chapters so far is how God worked in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. He's been talking about the law. He's been talking about Gentiles who didn't have access to the law, who didn't know the Jewish Scriptures. He's been talking about the Jews and their failure to keep the law of Moses and all those things. And Paul is saying, not only, but now in my argument, I'm going to tell you something different, but also, but now in history, something different has happened. Something new has come that was not here under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. It was witnessed to, as we'll see, in the Old Testament, but it wasn't revealed, it wasn't made clear then as it has been made clear now. Something different has happened. What is that? He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed. It's been shown. Right? It's, it's been made known. The righteousness of God is the thing that we know about now that we didn't know about then. And when you hear that, your first reaction might be, sure we knew about the righteousness of God. I mean, the Old Testament is full of stories and teachings about the righteousness of God. I mean, the whole Old Testament, the point of the whole Old Testament Right? is that God is righteous and nobody else is. Isn't that what Paul has just been saying all through these early chapters? None of us are righteous, but God is righteous. And because God's righteous and we're not righteous, we're going to be judged. How is that new? 
Well, that wouldn't be new. But that's not what Paul means by the righteousness of God here. Here, when he talks about the righteousness of God, he is talking about something a little bit different. He is talking about a righteousness that God has, that God gives. Uh, And one of the reasons why we know that is because Paul gave us a hint about this right at the beginning of the letter. As he was just getting started, there's that important little paragraph of just two verses in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul sort of lays out his thesis, right? If you remember from when you were in school and you're your teacher told you when you write an essay, when you write a paper, you've got to have a thesis statement. You've got to have a, a line or two where you tell me, this is what my paper is about. This is what I'm going to argue. This is the point of the whole thing. And here's what Paul says. This is his point for Romans. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So you hear that phrase again, the righteousness of God. And just like in chapter 3, he's saying here in chapter 1, the righteousness of God is revealed. It was hidden, it was not known, but it has now been unveiled, it has now been manifested. Where? He says, in the gospel. So in the death and resurrection of Jesus... The righteousness of God has now been seen in a way it was not seen before Christ came. And he gives us a little hint there in verse 17, right, that this righteousness is a gift. It's something God gives because he says it is the righteousness of the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So this righteousness is for those who believe. It is something that God Gives. So Paul is saying here, okay, there's something we didn't know, at least not clearly, under the law, under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, that God has now made known, and this new revelation changes everything. This is why Paul is an apostle. This is why he preaches. This is why he travels from city to city and place to place, planting churches, telling people about Jesus because of this new revelation. So what does he mean by this phrase, the righteousness of God? What does that mean? This is a really significant phrase in the letter to the Romans. So we need to nail down what he means by this phrase, the righteousness of God. Well, of course, because he says it's the righteousness of God, and he just told us back in verse 10 that none is righteous, we know at a minimum that this is something God has that we don't. God has the very thing that we are lacking and in desperate need of. The whole reason we're in trouble is because we're not righteous, and God is righteous. It's God's righteousness, but the key to understanding what he means by this phrase is in verse 22. He says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and if you underline in your Bibles, underline this little word for, for all who believe. This is a righteousness that is not against us. This is a righteousness that is for us. The righteousness of God for 
all who believe. In that little word for is this uh, explosive truth that God, by His grace, gives His own righteousness to those who believe. God gives to us the thing that He has that we lack but desperately need. His righteousness that has been revealed in the gospel is not the righteousness by which He judges us for being unrighteous. The righteousness He reveals in the gospel is the righteousness He gives to us so that we are righteous in His sight even though on our own we're actually unrighteous. That's what we call the doctrine of justification, right? Of being declared righteous by God before God. That's what Paul is talking about here. In the gospel, it has been made clear that God gives his righteousness to all who believe. Now, how do you, how do you get that? How does that work? Well, he says that this comes, this righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. So when you trust Jesus, right, when you put your faith in Christ, that faith unites you to Jesus. It connects you to Jesus. And when you become united to Christ, or Paul often uses the phrase, in Christ, right, when you are in Christ, when you are joined to Christ by faith, then all these things that belong to Jesus become yours. All these things that Jesus has, they flow to you through faith. Right? So faith is not what makes you righteous. Faith is not in itself righteousness. Faith connects you to Jesus, who is righteous, and you get His righteousness when you are in Him. Right? Now that's a little heady, so think, think of it like this. Right? Think about it like... Uh, like a, a water line, a water pipeline. In order, you, what you need in your house is not more pipes, you need water, right? But in order to get water, you got to have the pipes, right? Because the pipes are what connect you to the main water line where all the water is flowing. When you connect to the water line, then that water is able to come through the pipes and into your house so that you can have water, so you can have something to drink with, cook with, and all those things. Faith is not the water, Faith is like the pipeline, right? Faith is what connects you to Jesus who has power, who has righteousness, who has grace, who has love, who has mercy. And when you get connected to him by faith, then all those things flow into your life. Those are the things you need. What you need is Christ. The faith just connects you to him. So that's what Paul means when he says, I'm talking about the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ For all who believe. It's a righteousness that flows to you, that is given to you who believe, who have faith in Jesus Christ. Paul uh, sort of summarizes this very succinctly and powerfully in uh, in one verse in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, uh, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin." so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So God the Father made God the Son, who knew no sin, that's Jesus, the Father made the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin. Right? He took our sin on the cross, even though He had no sin of His own. 
And God did that, Paul says, so that in Him, in Christ, and remember the way we get in Christ is by faith, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Even though we are sinners, we are unrighteous, we become righteous, we have the righteousness of God when we trust in Christ, when we become in Christ. So, if you want to know how the gospel works, or even just what the gospel is, this is what Paul is talking about. The way the gospel works is this. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life before God. He died on the cross in the place of sinful people like you and me, taking our sin upon his shoulders, paying the the penalty that our sins deserved. Rose from the dead because the penalty was paid in full. No reason for him to stay dead any longer. And God has declared that anybody who turns from sin and trusts in Jesus will not only have their sins forgiven by Jesus' death, but they will also receive Jesus' righteousness. His record of perfect obedience becomes theirs. We receive the righteousness of God so that we stand before God not only forgiven with a blank slate, but like the hymn said that we sang just a minute ago, Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Faultless because our sins are forgiven, but also dressed or clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Now, Paul wants to be really clear that this news is new, right? That this news is uh, world changing. Right? But he also wants to be clear that this news and this new revelation is not out of sync with the old revelation, with the Old Testament. I notice that he says in verse 21 that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. But then he also says the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now why say those two things? Why is it so important for us to know that this righteousness has been revealed apart from the law, but that the law and the prophets bear witness to it? Well, it's important, first of all, to say that it was revealed apart from the law because we've just been told the law can't make us righteous. And we can't live up to the law and be righteous by our obedience to the law. No one can do that. No one can be justified by works of the law, he said in verse 20. So when he says... I want to tell you about a righteousness from God. He knows you might say, well, if, you, if this righteousness has anything to do with keeping the law, I know I'm, I'm sunk. Paul, you just told me I'm sunk. So he says, it's apart from the law. Right? This has nothing to do with keeping the law. It's a distinct revelation from the law. But at the same time, he knows that if, he, if his gospel is completely disconnected from the law, there's no reason why we should believe it. Is it from a different God? Has God completely and utterly changed his mind? Paul, where did you come up with this brand new, never ever heard of before idea? Why should I trust it? Well, Paul says, that's not what I'm doing. I am telling you something new that God has revealed But God's been telling us about it all along. He's been hinting at it all along, all through the Old Testament, even as He was preparing us for this new revelation by telling us about our sin and telling us we couldn't live up to His standard. 
He was also telling us along the way that he was going to provide another way for us to be righteous. He was hinting along the way about what would happen when the promised Messiah finally came and how he would make us righteous through that son. That's why he says the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the natural question is, where? Where do the law and the prophets bear witness to this gift of righteousness from God that is a part of our salvation? Well, there are many places, right? But I want to point out four. I have four places, two from the law and two from the prophets. None of them give us the whole full story like Paul does, but that's what we would expect, right? Because in the Old Testament, it's just pointers and hints. But all of them give us some clue to how God is going to save his people and provide for them, provide for us, the righteousness that we lack. So here's the first one. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21. Genesis 3, 21. We all know the story of Genesis 3, right? Where Adam and Eve sinned. uh, They rebelled against God. And what happened immediately in the wake of their sin? They realized that they were naked. Right? And they were ashamed and they sewed fig leaves together to make clothes for themselves to try to hang, hide the shame of their nakedness that came uh, in the wake of their sin. Right? And then God uh, calls them to account. He speaks the curse. And then in verse 21, it says this. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, why did he clothe them? Uh, before there was sin, at the end of chapter 2, before there was sin, they were naked and they were unashamed. They had no need for clothing. But in the wake of their sin, they became aware of their nakedness. They became ashamed of it. And so they need to be clothed now. And they've tried to clothe themselves and probably failed miserably in the attempt. And so God provides clothing for them. And what kind of clothing does he provide? Garments of skins. Well, where do garments of skins come from? God could just speak and there be garments of skin. I mean, we know he can do that, but that's not usually how God works. Where do garments of skin come from? They come from dead animals. In the Old Testament, why do you kill an animal? Usually to make a sacrifice for sin. So I'm arguing, suggesting... That in the wake of Adam and Eve's sin, what God did was sacrifice an animal for their sin so that they could be clothed. And that's a picture of our salvation. That's what Jesus came to do. To die in our place for our sin and to clothe us with his righteousness, with garments of salvation. Later in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 15.6, Abraham has been given the promise of a son, that he and his wife Sarah will have a son, but it's been a long time, and Abraham is starting to have doubts. He's uncertain. He's wanting some assurance. And so God tells him to look up at the heavens, right? And he says, your descendants, your offspring, are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And then Genesis 15, 6 says this, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, up to this point, Abraham has not done anything tremendously righteous. In this chapter, Abraham does not perform some great feat of obedience. He does that later when he 
uh, goes to sacrifice Isaac in obedience to the Lord. But at this point, Abraham has not done any tremendous deed of righteousness in this chapter. He doesn't do anything particularly impressive except trust God's astounding promise. And because he trusted God's promise, the Bible says that God counted it to him as righteousness. That is justification. That is what Paul is talking about in Romans 3. In fact, in chapter 4, Paul is going to quote this verse and say, what I am talking to you about, what I am arguing that God has done for us in the wake of the cross, is exactly what he did for Abraham in Genesis 15.6. This is not new. It's just more fully revealed now than it was then. So there's two places from the law where God shows us that he is going to grant us his righteousness in salvation despite our sin. Now two from the prophets. The first one is from Isaiah 53. Now you all know Isaiah 53, right? We know the passage uh, where it talks about how Jesus was uh, crushed for our iniquities, right? How he was bruised for our transgressions, how he suffered in our place for our sin. It's a powerful passage. One of the verses we don't think about out of that chapter as often is verse 11. But listen to what these words say. It's still talking about what Jesus is going to accomplish by his death. And it says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, that's Jesus, by, the knowledge, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So through what Jesus is going to do, many people are going to be counted righteous before God, even though they're unrighteous. Because they're unrighteous, Jesus is going to have to bear their sin. But as the righteous one, he is going to make many of them to be accounted righteous. They're going to receive the gift of the righteousness of God. It's there in the Old Testament. right? One more place. Zechariah chapter 3, which we read earlier. It's going to highlight a few verses from that passage. Right? It's, a, it's a profound picture of what God does for us in the gospel. So here's a few verses from Zechariah 3 again. Starting in verse 3. It says, Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. All right, so here's the high priest who's supposed to go into the temple and represent the people before God. He's supposed to be clothed with holy and pure garments as he enters God's presence on behalf of the people. But he is clothed with filthy garments. Disturbingly, disgustingly filthy garments. That's a big problem. And it says, The angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said, and to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. So now we know those filthy garments don't represent just clothes that need to be washed. They represent the high priest's sin. And maybe even the sin of the whole nation as the high priest represents the nation. So in taking off those filthy garments... It's a picture of taking away his sin. So he says, Behold, I have taken, away, uh, taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Now, we just 
are supposed to figure out the second half of that, right? That the clean clothing, the clean vestments represent God's gift of salvation, God's gift of righteousness and holiness, just like the removal of the filthy garments represented the removal of sin, right? The new clean garments represent righteousness and holiness and purity, right? They're called pure vestments. So there again, you have a picture of how God provides salvation for his people, not only by removing their sin, but also by granting them a gift of righteousness that they do not deserve, that they did not earn, that they did not work for, that they don't merit. So this is an, Paul is saying this is an important part of the gospel that we need to grasp. Right? That when you became a Christian, and if you're not a Christian, this can become true of you if you turn from your sin and trust in Christ. But when you became a Christian, whether you realize this was part of the transaction or not, this is what happened. Not only were your sins taken away, right, and you were washed white as snow, God also pronounced over you, this one is righteous in my sight. This one I clothe with the righteousness of my son, Jesus Christ. This one is holy in my sight. And part of what is so good about that good news is that that's not a righteousness that you performed. And so even when you continue to sin, right, even when you mess up today and tomorrow and the next day, does that remove the righteousness that God has given to you? No, because you didn't put it there in the first place. You did not accomplish it. You did not create it. You can't spoil it. It's God's righteousness for you. So when you come to church to worship, when you open your Bible and take a few moments to pray at home, know that you come before God righteous. Righteous. And it's God Himself who has said you are righteous. It's God Himself who has given you His own righteousness. So the law and the prophets, they point to these things. They hint at these things, but only with the coming of Jesus have they been fully revealed. What a privilege we have of living on this side of the cross, of hearing this good news, of being told these truths, of of knowing that we can come before God, not only with our sins forgiven, but also positively righteous in His sight, clothed in the righteousness of His own beloved Son. There's no more secure place that you could stand than that. Let's pray.